0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Welcome to the February 28th, 2022 For Your Benefit radio show. We're here today with Josh Huter, Josh is Dr. Josh Kuder. Uh, and he's going to discuss the what the 117th Congress. Josh is a senior fellow at the Governmental Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. Um, Josh comes on the show at least once a year, and um, I'm sure you will be glued to his every word. Um, the the Governmental Affairs at, at Georgetown University is a non for profit organization dedicated to educating federal employees about Congress and its operations. Good morning, Josh. Good
0: morning, Bob. How are you doing?
1: Well, a lot better now that I got the intro out of the way, so now all I have to do is ask questions as, as you talk. So, and trust all is good. Um, you gave me some bullet points, so I think the, the, the first one you get is spot on to begin with. So, so how's the 117th Congress fared so far?
0: Wow, that's a that's kind of a loaded question, right? So <laughs> um, we have a, a pretty unusual situation in the House and the Senate at the moment. Um, we have very narrow margins. We've got 100, 222 Democrats in the House. That's just a bare majority uh, north of the 218, which is a minimum that you need in order to control the chamber. Um, so very, very small margins in the House. Over in the Senate, it's completely evenly divided. Um, and the only thing that's giving Democrats control is the fact that They hold the White House, and therefore the vice president is the tiebreaker in the 50-50 Senate. Um, So this is a pretty unusual thing. Um, Historically speaking, we had a couple of years in the late 90s, early 2000s, where you saw similarly narrow margins. Um, But during those times, you also had divided government, where the Congress was of uh, the Republican Party and the, the president was Democrat, at least part of it um you have to go back to like almost world war ii to see similarly small and narrow margins and of course the thing that makes this congress stand out is its partisanship and polarization which is really the defining feature of this generation of politics um and so you have this very interesting historical context in which democrats are trying to legislate with historically small margins um and so it, you know, the results have been sort of a mixed bag so far. Um, for most of the year, uh, the, the Democrats have been focused on their, um, their agenda, their party platform. Um, and that has gone to a ton of COVID relief uh, that went in, uh, in in March of this past year. In addition to that, they had things like the Child Income Tax Credit, a lot of big kind of policy initiatives. It was a major, major spending bill, um, around $2 trillion um, worth of spending. Um, and then after that, they switched gears and started moving towards infrastructure, right? And of course, this became the bipartisan infrastructure bill, where uh, Joe Manchin and um, Rob Portman and uh, Mitt Romney and Kirsten Sinema, a lot of a lot of kind of bipartisan senators, worked a infrastructure deal to the tune of a, roughly a trillion dollars. So when we're talking about like how is the Congress faring? Uh, there's several metrics to gauge that. One of it, this is a big spending Congress. Um, last Congress was a big spending Congress. Um, the Republican-controlled Senate had signed off on a lot of stuff. The Republican president signed off on a lot of stuff. And, of course, that's wrapped up in all of the COVID stuff um, and COVID reaction, re- reactions and responses that Congress has been taking on. But this, this Congress has continued that as the uh, restrictions have eased, as vaccines have become more prevalent. Uh, this Congress is still a very, very large spending Congress. Um, that said, like they also haven't accomplished a lot of what they wanted to. Probably um, the president's Build Back Better plan, uh, which they were pushing in late 2021, is is effectively on the shelf somewhere. We don't we don't know where it's it's, but it's hanging out there in limbo. Um, Joe Manchin killed that. Uh, decided that he could not support it as it was written. Um, Where those negotiations stand now is anybody's guess with everything that's going on. Uh, They didn't do a lot of things that Congress normally does, which is like pass a budget, for example. Uh, They have not funded agencies, for example. We're still doing that um, at this moment. And now we have a couple really big ticket items that are going to shift Congress's attention again. Uh, We have a Supreme Court vacancy, uh, which has just come up, and the president just last week announced um, that he has... uh, decided to nominate Ms. Mrs. Jackson uh, for that spot, a D- D.C. Circuit uh, Court judge who's going to, or sorry, appellate judge who's going to be moved up or potentially moved up to the Supreme Court. Um, and we have the crisis in Ukraine. Um, so Congress is talking about supplemental aid to that. So it's it's kind of unclear. Um, they, uh, you can it, You can kind of pick and choose what you want. They passed some really big major legislation. They've also ignored some low-hanging fruit, arguably. Um, and now, you know, kind of current events are going to shift their attention. So it's been an interesting year and a half for sure.
1: So if you were to step back and, and look and say, um, what was the, a winning combination that got something through where somebody might think, really, did they pass that? Or were, were things left on the side that maybe should have been passed?
0: Well, it's, that's a good question. I think that you know there are parts of the current Build Back Better bill, right? The, not the whole thing, obviously, not the two trillion or one trillion or one point five trillion or whatever they were talking about doing, um, but there are certainly small elements of that that were supported by a majority of, or at least enough senators to pass something. Uh, but there's been some real tension between the moderates of the Democratic Party and the progressives of the Democratic Party. Um, I don't know if you remember late September, but if you were a Congress watcher, there was all sorts of drama. <laughs> and so, the progressives were holding up the infrastructure bill. The moderates were holding up the progressives' bill. They were kind of both like staring at one another. This is like an intra-party fight um, and standoff, like a game of chicken between progressives and the moderates. Um, and so, there was a lot of real tension, political tension between them at that po- at that point in time. We're still seeing that today. Um, for example, President Biden is going to give his State of the Union. Uh, Tomorrow, and in addition to the normal responses from the Republican Party, we're going to have a progressive response from a representative from Michigan, Rashida Tlaib, Um, and she is going to give the progressive response to President Biden's speech. Um, So that kind of shows you how tense uh, this part, uh, the tensions are within the Democratic Party itself. Um, So on the one hand, like it's very impressive that they were able to pass what they've already passed. On the other, it's kind of not surprising that they haven't passed more given the fact that this is a very, very small majority, and there are clearly political tensions between the two wings of the party. Um, so what, if anything, gets adopted later on this year as part of that major initiative that the president announced, that Build Back Better plan, it's gonna be interesting to watch. And that's you know pending that Current events don't just completely wrap up the legislative agenda, which is completely possible, or the midterm elections don't interfere. So we're really looking at a kind of an interesting few months coming up because at some point everybody's going to go home and campaign, um, and it will affect what Congress can do with its remaining time.
1: Now you've been doing this for a while, and you've seen this, that, or another thing. So if you were to look back and look at current do you see a parallel to anything in the past with regards to, like you say, moving legislation through, or this party's in control, or that? Is there is there is there a memory of of, of a Congress or a president at the time that paralleled what we got now, or is this new territory?
0: Yeah, I think I think there. I mean, there there are obviously some parallels throughout history, right? Um, I think one of the ones that's very interesting is that there have been a lot of ambitious goals from the Democratic Party. Um, And in particular, President Biden has wanted to, quote unquote, go big, right? He was, he brought in a bunch of historians early on in his term, and he was talking about kind of like the big initiatives of previous administrations. And um, a lot of people impressed upon him, given like the uh, enormous amount of spending that was uh, passed, like, $3, $4 $3, 4000000000000 trillion of spending in the 116th Congress, uh, they wanted to continue that in the 117th, and they have to a significant degree. And the, the sheer size of these packages has meant that many people kind of compare Joe Biden's presidency to FDR um, during the New Deal or LBJ during the Great Society. These are, you know, Congresses were historically large legislative packages were ushered through Congress and uh, put into law almost immediately, like very, very quickly. Um, and so on that front, it's been interesting to watch because um, President Biden does not have LBJ or FDR like majorities in Congress. Right? The, in fact, the two worlds, they're, they're almost not comparable. Uh, these two things, right? Uh, FDR, when he was president of the United States, Um, starting in 1933. He's looking at majorities of like 300 and 320 some odd members in the House. He's got 70 senators, uh, Democratic senators in the Senate. I mean, you can do whatever you want when you have those (laughs) sides, majorities. And same thing with uh, LBJ. I mean, he had 295 Democrats in in, uh, 1965. He had like more than two thirds of the chamber in the Senate. Again, you can do whatever you want when you have majorities the size that FDR and LBJ did. And whatever you want is a bit of a broad term. You can do a lot, and they did a lot in those things. Now, Biden is not going to be either one of those presidents simply because he does not have the coalition, right? You can't run and and create the size and scope of those government programs and those government bills um, in the same way when you have a five-vote margin in the House and a zero-vote margin in the Senate. It's just not possible. Um, and I think the more appropriate analogy for biden might be kind of jfk's first two years right where you have this ambitious president who wants to get a lot done um but he doesn't really have the political power or muscle within congress to, to usher it through right um uh jfk was a very very ambitious politician but congress really didn't deliver on a lot of the stuff he wanted to do right it's a peace corps they did a few other things but like civil rights was not done uh, under uh, jfk um lots of other initiatives that he wanted to pass were not passed um so it's going to be interesting to see how President Biden's uh, 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 legacy plays out, um, because he has these big, big ambitions, at least he did domestically, I'm sure he's caught up with more foreign affairs these days. Um, but he really didn't have the majorities in Congress that would suggest that he could get any of that done or much of it done. Um, what he's done so far is, is, is impressive, given the scope and the size of these programs. Um, if he can get anything else done, we'll have to wait and see. But um, It's certainly not one of the, the the parallel that's being drawn a lot in the media where it's like, oh, well, this is FDR or LBJ. It's like, no, 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 this is going to be a much more timid sort of legacy than those those mammoths of, of political history.
1: What would you say that was passed that maybe you thought, I didn't think that would pass under the current administration?
0: Well, uh, quite honestly, uh, I think that the size of the packages really stands out. I mean, you're looking at basically $3 trillion um, that's already been spent this Congress, in addition to sort of like your routine mandatory programs. And that those are just massive, right? Um, the, the size of the, the numbers, it, it's, you know, we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic still. Um, and so you get sort of jaded with the size of the packages when the problem is so huge, but it, it still stands to, uh, it should take, give somebody pause and just sort of like, look at the size of these things, because these are historically large bills. Um, when you're talking about trillion, two trillion $2 um, trillion. And there's still more on the table potentially um, to go out the door. And so uh, the child tax credit was really interesting. Um, that was done, it's now phased out. I don't know, if I, I'm not sure it'll be back in the packages. They have, they have very, very ambitious climate policies out there. So um, there's been a lot of stuff that's passed, but like the sheer the size of these things, uh, should should people should reflect upon that because it's not every day that you see a trillion dollar bill go through Congress.
1: Wow. So Andrew says it's time to take a break, and we're going to listen to what the good folks at WEPA, the sponsor of the show, uh, can do for the listeners as well. They'll be next week's guest.
2: A new year brings new opportunities. WEPA is using this opportunity to lower rates across multiple age bands and multiple coverage amounts. Get group term life insurance and help protect your family's future at newly reduced rates. WEPA's mission is to promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. On average, members who switched from Fegley to WEPA saved over $300 a year. Start your year with WEPA and enjoy exclusively priced group term life insurance coverage. Visit WAEPA.org to learn more today.
1: WEPA. For feds. By feds. All righty. welcome back to for your benefit. We're here today. Today is February twenty eighth, two thousand twenty two. We're with Josh Huter, and he's a PhD. And we're talking about the one hundred seventeenth Congress. Josh has been on the show for several years, or I even say many years, and he takes what I think is very hard to understand and puts it into language that uh, I can understand. And then um, um, the ramifications of leaning left, right, etc. So, Josh. I'll put the uh, spotlight back on you. Did we finish up um, your thought process on on the uh, second question?
0: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's, just, it's it's an interesting Congress given the political dynamics, but um, it's it's been both good and surprising in some ways, and and not surprising in others. So I think, yeah, more or less, I, I I've run out of things to talk about on that front.
1: Okay, so um, government funding. Uh, will Congress pass a spending bill soon? Uh, I think you touched on that, and what will it take, given that Congress doesn't um, sign off on everything that's put in front of them? What what do you see any roadblocks coming up or
0: issues? Well, I mean, the the, the biggest roadblock, as always, is just getting these things over the line. (laughs) I mean, this has been a a chronic problem for Congress. Um, And people like to lament the budget system and the appropriations process and how broken they are. And that's certainly true. Um, I think it's important to put a little context on that. The uh, Congress funding the government has never been easy, right? And it's never been something that they do on time. Um, and it's got a long, long, long history of uh, funding, uh, passing funding bills late, uh, passing them uh, uh, really late, passing a bunch of other stopgap measures to fill in between. And this goes back, you know, centuries. It's, it's not it's not normal for Congress to fund the government on time routinely. <laughs> that was, um, As shocking as that may be. I mean, just to give you an example, in the 1880s, Congress was so delayed in passing its funding bills that they actually had to turn the clock backwards to pretend that it had not (laughs) struck noon and the Congress had not expired so that they could pass the last funding bills and spending bills before time ran out, essentially. Um, So that's the type of stuff that has happened in the past. Now, today... Uh, we are uh, in a spot. The good news is that good news is that congressional appropriators finally have numbers, right? So they have they have the numbers at which they are going to write the spending bills, which is great. Uh, the bad news is is that we're already almost six months into the fiscal year, right? So even if agencies get the money right now, uh, you're looking at six months to spend the full year appropriation, and that's just not going to happen. Um, so. It's almost a comical state of affairs. Now, are we going to get over the line as anybody's guess? Uh, people in Congress and the House and Senate, uh, they've been very cagey about uh, their, the deal that's been struck. Evidently, there has been a deal, but zero details about the deal have been struck or, or released. Um, so we don't know what's coming up. We do know that we're going to run out of government funding again at the end of this or in a few a week or two, I think. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if we can actually get a funding bill in done in time. Um, so it's gonna be interesting to watch because we just don't have enough information at the moment. Um, this is an unusually uh, well-kept information process, I should say. Normally you see a, a few more leaks than, the, than normal, but um, than you would normally, I should say. Uh, but I think they'll get a funding bill through. It's just a matter of if it'll be on time or if we have to do another spending deal. But um, the fact that we're talking about this and it's already March, um, it, it's, it, it, it leaves something to be desired.
1: Now, will there be more dollars spent uh, dealing with the acrimony uh, we are uh, today? Will that impact future, I won't say future budget uh, spending, but this is a, a cost that wasn't penciled in. So right. how do they do that in the budget? I mean, the, every, every year there's something, probably not too much like now, but uh, how does then the funding for that to try to put the fires out there. uh, How does that work?
0: Right. It's a good question. I mean, uh, the Ukraine crisis has been interesting uh, to watch from a congressional perspective because now there's a a lot of momentum behind sending aid, military aid uh, to Ukraine in the form of uh, arms sales and a bunch of other stuff. And there's talk of about $6 billion out there to help fund humanitarian efforts, um, refugee efforts, uh, et cetera. Um, Now The question is, how is that six billion going to be passed or spent? Uh, Normally, they do it through something called an emergency supplemental, um, which is just a bill that says, like, we are going to spend X amount of dollars to deal with X crisis, whatever that is. Um, When you had uh, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy come through, they passed a large supplemental. When you had a bunch of tornadoes in the Midwest and in the South, you saw a supplemental. So the question is, like, are we going to have a standalone bill that sends money over to our allies in Europe, or, or is it going to be wrapped into this large spending deal that's currently being negotiated, um, which funds the rest of the government? And so they'll they'll figure that out one way or the other, um, but uh, they can do it either way. It's just a matter of how much time they believe they have uh, to support their allies in Ukraine versus how much time is going to take to negotiate 12 funding bills uh, from the Appropriations Committee.
1: I would think that, you know, that would occupy a lot of time and talent um, to bring the two sides together for the greater good. Um, But that's your world and um, (laughs) not mine. So I'm glad you're on the other end of this, Mike. So this is 2022. It's an election year. Um, What's the outlook for uh, congressional midterms?
0: Well, It's a good question. Uh, It depends on which side of the aisle you are on. (laughs) Um, Just from like historical perspective, um, the the midterm elections are almost always bad for the president's party. Um, So on average, whatever party is in control of the presidency, they tend to lose seats in Congress. Um, And it's a pretty significant dent, right? On average, you're talking about 25 to 30 seats uh, the president's party loses in a midterm election. So if you're Democrats and you've got a five vote margin right now, uh, majority that you're holding onto in the House, just sort of like normal midterm dynamics means that you have a 25 seat deficit uh, next fall. Um, so it's going to be very, or sorry, uh, yeah, next winter. Um, it's gonna be very interesting to watch because it, it would take something monumental and very unusual historically uh, for Democrats to hold the House because midterm elections are just historically so um, bad for the president's party. Um, For example, since the Civil War, there have only been three times really that the president's party gained seats in the midterm. Um, So it's very, very unusual. So Democrats are really looking at a uphill battle uh, to hold both chambers, to be honest. Um, Now, uh, there are a couple other factors that will make it even more difficult than the sort of normal factors that are there. Um, first is that the president's approval rating is pretty low right now. Uh, the, the the average approval of the president is currently about 40.5%. Um, that is not good at all. Um, so if it continues to remain that low uh, and the president does not improve on that number to get up to like 45, 46, 47%, 47% would be actually pretty good. Um, you could start to envision a situation where Democrats lose a lot of seats in both chambers. Um, and you're looking at sizable Republican majorities in the 118th Congress uh, for both chambers. So on top of that, right on top of the president's bad approval and sort of normal midterm midterm dynamics, the. Uh, election midterm election dynamics in a after a unified government are even worse than normal so when one party controls the house the senate and the presidency that next midterm tends to be a bloodbath for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. yes so when you think about like the major landslides of the last couple last couple decades um when democrats had control of government in the 100 in 2009 and 2010 that led to the uh landslide election republican wave in 2010 where it brought 60 plus seats in the House and a bunch of seats in the Senate. Um, in 2018, after Republicans held the, the House and the Senate and the presidency, you had the 2018 landslide where Democrats took flipped almost 50 seats, um, 44, 43, somewhere in the neighborhood, um, in the following election. So when you have unified control of the government, the midterm elections tend to be even more damaging than they are normally. So wrap all this together and you're looking at a fairly difficult, uh, um, uh, outlook for, um, for Democrats in the house and the Senate In the house, you're defending a lot of moderate seats that were Republican just four years ago. And the Senate, you've got a ton of, uh, competitive seats out there. Um, there's, uh, Senator Kelly from Arizona, uh, Raphael Warnock from Georgia, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire. Um, those are all seats that are going to be vulnerable, and that Republicans have a chance to pick up. Um, on the other side, uh, Democrats could pick up a seat in Pennsylvania. They could pick up a seat in Wisconsin, um, North Carolina, and Ohio. Both have open seat races, uh, but it's going to be hard to see how a Democrat picks up those seats in a bad midterm environment. So. Um, It'll be interesting to watch. And the bigger question is, given this midterm outlook, given the fact that Democrats are facing uh, such an uphill battle in both chambers, uh, how is it going to affect the agenda? Right. If President Biden wants to pass this big progressive vision that he's been working for since September of last year, um, how is he going to do that when moderates get cold feet because they're back home campaigning and they see the kind of odds that they're facing uh, going into Election Day? Uh, It's going to get more and more difficult, the worse and worse the uh, environment looks for them. So uh, it's something to keep an eye on. But without some sort of like approval or swing in the president's favor, um, this looks like it could be a pretty substantial victory for Republicans.
1: Wow. So this this next question kind of keys into what you just said. Do you believe that Congress can put their differences aside due to the pressing world events?
0: I think they can. uh, And they do a lot. Um, this is something that, uh, is, uh, overstated, right? I don't want to understate how much partisanship there is in the political system because it's certainly really bad in in a lot of ways. Um, and we can, we can talk about that in terms of like routine government, just sort of like the easy stuff that should be easy is a little bit harder than it used to be. At the same time, we risk overstating how much partisanship is affecting this. Um, we, uh. Just came out of a pandemic or we're in a pandemic. I don't know where we are, but we're, there's a pandemic. <laughs> and we've been dealing with this on a bipartisan basis. Uh, we forget that like $4 trillion or more of uh, pandemic spending was done in March and April um, and following up in December of 2020. And that was done on a massive bipartisan basis in Congress. Um we just passed a large infrastructure deal. That was a bipartisan deal with 17 Republican senators voting for it um, and, and helping craft that deal. Um, these are big bipartisan things. And it's interesting because despite the fact that we have these bipartisan reactions and responses, they're not framed that way. Uh, so, for example, after the uh, pandemic, I got a couple calls from some reporters who wanted to discuss the sort of like context of passing these major, like huge, huge, huge spending bills and The first question was, well, how partisan was this? I was like, well, they just passed it with 350 votes in the House and like 70 something in the Senate. Like it's as bipartisan as it's going to get for this kind of like major bill. Like, okay, sure, sure. But how partisan was it? And it's it's sort of like it just misses the point. Um, And this goes to a kind of general trend within the media in many cases where. They like to uh, amplify the voices of partisanship. They like to discuss partisanship and polarization. Um, But they do so at a risk of completely omitting the bipartisan stuff that Congress is doing. Um, And Congress today still passes a lot of legislation. Most legislation that Congress passes in a given Congress is bipartisan. Like we are still passing lots of bipartisan bills. They're just not getting the sort of or um, attention period uh, that they deserve in many cases. So it's a bit of a, of a mixed bag. I think people uh, like to talk about partisanship and how ugly it is. Um, at the same time, like we overlook a lot of the bipartisanship that's out there. And when we have these kind of crises that we face, whether that's a crisis in Europe with the invasion of Ukraine or the pandemic um, or other types of things that need addressing like supplemental emergencies and you know weather crises or whatever it does, there's strong bipartisan support for these bills in Congress, um, and we shouldn't overlook that.
1: Are there some bills that are passed and you being knowledgeable prior to the, the vote, you figure, I, I think it's going to go this way, but it doesn't go this way. So uh, are there uh, surprises that have come in, in uh, uh, recent, let's say, last uh, couple years that you go, I, I didn't really expect this? And I know you're a soothsayer and you can see it all in advance, but sometimes seeing in advance and then seeing in reality are two different things. Um, Are there any major ones that jump out and you say, I was surprised at this one?
0: Well, yeah, I think there are a few, but it's not typically when the vote happens, right? So by the time that the vote's about to come, coming down the pike and, you know, leaders have set up a schedule and, you know, every the the bill's written and it's coming to the floor, you sort of know what it looks like. Um, what is surprising is the uh, is some of the initial reactions, right? It's like, oh, well, this is gonna be a partisan issue and it turns out it's not a partisan issue or, oh, this is a bipartisan issue. And then it turns out like, oh, wow, they really don't have the support for that that they thought they would. So there've been a couple surprises, but um, overall, you can kind of see the lines pretty well now. Um, one of the good, good things about partisanship is you can very clearly see where Democrats stand and where Republicans stand on most major issues. Um, the thing that really is up for up in the air is you don't know what kind of uh, political legs a particular issue is going to get, like how, how much attention is that going to draw from the broader political system. And when there's more attention, it tends to be more partisan. And so issues that you might think like, hey, this is going to fly under the radar and become law, uh, all of a sudden don't, right? Um, and you see bipartisan deals kind of uh, uh, flounder by the wayside. Um, On the other hand, you see some partisan issues, right, where the size of these spending bills, uh, you would not assume that Republicans would be on board with, like, massive trillions of dollars, but they were. Uh, And that was a little surprising how many votes that those bills got. But um, for the most part, you know, by the time, within the first week or so that an issue comes onto the agenda, you can kind of figure where it's going to land.
1: All right. So if we we were looking forward um, and, and looking at potential change in leadership, Uh, Will Congress have more governmental shutdowns in that case and investigations?
0: It's quite possible, yes. Um, I think that more investigations for sure, Um, because you're going to see Republicans take the chambers, which means that they're all of a sudden going to have committee chairs um, and they're going to be determining what the committees do on a week to week basis. Um, And like any partisan opposition, they're going to focus their attention on the Biden administration, Um, both legitimate and not all that legitimate right they're going to have a lot of hearings on things that maybe don't have the sort of uh, uh a conspiracy that they might be assuming so um this is sort of like a natural partisan reaction so you will see more investigations you will see more attention and heat put on the biden administration uh if republicans get one or both chambers um there's also very much the potential that there could be a shutdown um this has uh, been sort of pretty common when we had divided government. Divided government's been the norm for the, for the last couple decades now, where the president is of one party and one or both chambers of Congress are of the other. Um, and when you see that type of situation, you just see how amplified uh, the differences are on budget politics when uh, these bills come to the come to uh, the agenda. And they always do because they have to by law, right? They're required to pass a budget. Um, they're required to fund the government. And so you start to see a lot of the uh, sticking points in politics really get amplified in budget practices. And so it's very possible that we will see more shutdowns. Uh, It's been pretty common to see at least one shutdown a year Um, of one department or multiple departments or all departments um, for the last decade. So I don't anticipate that would slow down. Uh, The president's gonna submit his budget, uh, the Congress is gonna write a different budget and if they can hash out their differences, they can get appropriations bills and funding bills passed. But um, by all accounts, like if recent history is any guide, you can expect that it's going to be a little more fraught and a little more difficult to pass that legislation than it is currently. And keep in mind, currently we're still we're already six months late. So we'll see we'll see how it goes when uh, uh, when the two chambers are or, or the sorry the two parties are controlling different levers of government.
1: Very good. I think this is a perfect time. For the second and last break, and let the listeners know a little bit more about NITP that um, does these shows and retirement seminars and webinars um, throughout the year.
0: Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's N-I-T-P-I-N-C to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars.
2: Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career? Or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar.
1: All righty, welcome back to for your benefit. We're here with Josh Seward, and we're talking about Congress. Yeah. And um, I wish I could take notes as fast as you talk, and but I'm, I'm I'm remembering what you're talking about. But here's a question that came from one of the listeners, and 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 it says, "I understand legislation of Build Back Better is thousands of pages long. What is the percentage of our representatives that actually read the bill?" And how many aides does each representative have to help the, the, the people understand the questions?
0: Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> this a, yeah, this, this is a question I get a lot. How many people read the bill? Um, of course, there are a lot of movements out there as well, like the read the bill movement. Right, It's like it's one of the things where you see a large bill come up and people start yelling about reading the bill and whatnot. And the reality is uh, there are zero representatives that read the actual bill. <laughs> and there, there are a few really good reasons for that um, first reading bill text is impossible i don't know if anybody's like pulled up a bill you can go to congress.gov and, and look at these things yourself but they're just impossible to read because a lot of the text is literally just like uh, take this chapter of the u.s code and amend it in the following way and they don't tell you the context of it it's just saying like strike subsection eg from title three and following these are huge changes to the law and you have no idea how the bill is actually changing it because bill text is really just legal ease, right? Um, it's changing existing statutes. So it's very, very difficult to understand unless you're an expert in those areas. Um, and so the other part of this is the same reason that you, like, don't inspect the, like, spark plugs on your car when you're buying a car is the, is the reason that you don't read the bill text, right? It's, it's sort of like you have a thing, you understand what the car does, you kind of understand what you're buying, and so you vote for it based on what you understand is in the bill. Um, you know, when you buy a car, maybe somebody's going through and like checking every single spark plug for any defects or making sure their exhaust system is, is functioning in the way that it should. But most people that buy a car are doing it on the assumption and on the premise that the car functions a certain way and it's going to do a certain thing. Um, there's, it's sort of comparable to that. So if you are comfortable with buying a car or really any item at all, without going through all the due diligence of every single piece of that particular thing, then it's similar to how you would approach voting for a bill. If you were an elected representative, Um, typically you you have a lot of uh, very, very difficult text to understand and you don't have enough time to read it anyway. Um, So it's not necessarily what people want to hear, but it's the reality of the situation. Um, Now, how many, how many people do they have uh, to help them with this type of thing? This is another really good question. Uh, Members of Congress have, pretty substantial staffs uh, in the house. You can hire up to 22 people uh, in the Senate. You can hire more potentially. It really just depends on um, how many people you want to hire. It's a little bit different in that sense. Um, some Senate staffs are very large. Some, some sort of staffs are somewhat smaller. So it varies, but typically what you're looking at when you're talking about like policy advisors, you're looking about like seven to nine people in the house and you're looking maybe 15 to 20 in the Senate. Um, And they're the ones that are going to help you help the member or the senator understand what's in the bill. Uh, They're the policy experts are the ones that get that kind of vet the information to make sure that the senator or member knows what's going to be voted on, what's coming to the floor and why. They're sort of like the eyes and ears of the member of Congress. So um, when that bill does come up. Right. And the senator or the member of Congress is going to be voting on it. They turn to their staff who know what's under the hood, so to speak. They've done a little bit more due diligence of what's in the bill, why it's in the bill, the purpose of the bill, what the actual substance is going to do, right, how it's going to change policy. Um, and they rely on that uh, that advice uh, and that input from them. So. It's a little bit of a mixed, mixed, mixed thing there. Nobody's really reading the bill in substance, but they are getting a good, good sense of what's in it and how it changes policy before they're voting on it. And they do that with some pretty robust staffs.
1: Now, talking about staff and understanding, let's uh, I'm going to let the listeners uh, hear your profile once again. Josh Huder, H-U-D-E-R. He's a Ph.D. And uh, we're talking about the 117th Congress. But Josh is the senior fellow. At the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University, what's that? It's a non-for-profit organization <clears throat> dedicated to education, ed- educating federal employees about Congress and its operations. So, what we're talking about here is uh, anybody can listen to this show, and we we have a, we have a, I would say a very good um, um, dedicated listening group, and um, I, I would hope they're listening today, but. How would somebody uh, get in contact with you or your organization if they had to go any further? As I understand you, you teach this. I mean, it, this isn't just that you write papers and what and you, you educate federal employees, but some federal employees might not be aware that you're around.
0: That's exactly right. Um, we've been doing this uh, for over 50 years now. Uh, the Government Affairs Institute has been around uh, before 1995 or so. Um, the government affairs institute was actually part of the u.s government uh, we were part of the pre- the civil service back in the day uh civil service commission which is the precursor to the office of personnel management today um, but we were in the government and we did the same thing we were doing we were created by congress because they be- they believed that federal workers should have a sophisticated understanding of how congress works and functions because the federal workforce is responsible to Congress, both in terms of money and authorizations and all that fun jazz, uh, they believe that, con- that federal workers should understand how Congress works so that they have a better understanding of what to do and what, how to respond to congressional inquiries, et cetera. So uh, we've been doing this for over 50 years now. Um, we landed in the nonprofit sector in 1995 uh, because Al Gore and the Clinton administration were reinventing government. They they reinvented us out of government. <laughs> so we landed in the nonprofit sector. But uh, w- our mission remains the same. Uh, we want to educate federal workers on how Congress operates and why it th- does the things that it does. Uh, so they have a better, more sophisticated understanding of what's going on on the Hill, and they can better respond to it um, and communicate with it if necessary. So that's what we've been doing. And, and our mission is really to... Uh, create a more sophisticated understanding of uh, Congress and its operation. Um, And so what we do is we bring a lot of academic background to this, right? I'm a PhD in political science. I wrote my I, I'm currently writing a book on Congress. I have I have a lot of academic interests, but I also worked on Capitol Hill. And so what we try to do here at the Institute is kind of blend uh, the academic understanding of Congress with the practical politics of Congress so that federal officials have a really good practical understanding, both theoretical and in practice, of what's going on on Capitol Hill and why. Um, and so we put out a lot of stuff in terms of uh, educating people about Congress. We look to be a source of information and resource for uh, people. Um, and you can find us at GAI.Georgetown.edu. Um, g-a-i.georgetown.edu. Um, and uh, we are, uh, again, we, we put on classes. We have uh, four-day seminars. We have two-day seminars. Um, but it's basically like, what do you want to learn about Congress? And we're able to deliver that for you. Um, we have a lot of different uh, insights and, and focuses. But um, again, our mission is really to make sure that uh, federal workers are are clear on what their legislative branch is doing.
1: Yeah, with regards to your students, are they only federal employees, retired, or do you ever educate the um, um, private sector world on how Congress works?
0: We we have had some some students and some participants come in from the private sector world, but. of our students are federal employees um, from agencies in the federal, in the government. So we are open for anybody um, uh, to take a class, but um, really most of our students and participants are in the federal government. And so we like to make sure that our program is focused on things that affect the federal government in particular, because we know that's where our, uh, that's what our students are most interested in.
1: Okay, now I get so glued to what you're talking about, I forget what I asked earlier. So hopefully I I didn't ask this before. So this is 2022. It's an election year. Um, And I think I may have asked this. What is the outlook for the congressional midterms?
0: Yeah. Again, it's pretty it's looking pretty Republican. So um, the chances that we are going to have divided government are pretty good um, moving forward. Uh, and the question is, how is that going to affect government, the operation of government? It's, it's going to be more difficult, right? You're not going to see the same sort of uh, major partisan pushes that you see today. So President Biden is not going to submit like a build back better plan uh, to Congress, because with the Republican Congress, he knows that's going to be dead on arrival. Um, and the question is, is are other sorts of things going to be caught up in partisanship? And the chance that you're going to have, uh, you know, some routine operations uh, disrupted by divided government, it, it's pretty possible, right? You might have slower than normal confirmations for sure. Um, you might have more difficult reauthorizations. So if you're looking at like a farm bill, for example, uh, which is a big bill that has like USDA stuff and and, and supplemental nutrition and crop subsidies and all sorts of stuff, uh, that could become a more difficult bill to pass. Appropriations bills, like funding bills, are going to be more difficult to pass. So if Republicans take back both chambers, as it looks like they will. Um it's going to be uh, it's going to affect the gov- the operation of government. It's going to make it a little bit harder to do everything.
1: Okay, got another um, uh, t- two other questions from uh, the listeners. First one, social security is a very popular federal program, but it has staffing and solvency problems. I understand that social security is considered the third rail, but issues have to be addressed. What is your expert opinion? On what will happen? <laughs> that, that's a whole hour, but uh, let's, let's condense it to a few minutes. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it really—it really is a big—a big question. Um, one of the things that uh, I like to look at when you talk about Social Security is what members are thinking. I mean, th- this is a—this is going to be a bipartisan issue. Um, you can't address this solution without bipartisanship. <laughs> Uh, because there's a filibuster in the Senate that requires 60 senators, right, three-fifths of the chamber in order to pass a, a, a bill that affects Social Security, um, they're going to have to work across the aisle. Now, there is a solvency issue, as your listener correctly points out. I don't know when uh, the Social Security Trust Fund is going to run out, but it's going to be sometime in the next decade. Um, and what happens then is that uh, Social Security will pay out smaller benefits, um, than what is currently being doled out based on the current formulas and whatnot. So there will be a need for Congress to address this problem in the, in the coming future. Um, Congress, on the other hand, is not a super forward-looking institution, right? This is sort of common in any democracy when you have a re- election of elected officials. Um, because they're looking at their next election. That's always the front and center focus. And until this becomes like a really, really big issue that's right in front of the elected officials' faces, you're probably not going to see too much in the media or too much from members about it. Um, That said, it's something that uh, the staff on Capitol Hill understand. Both parties understand it is coming. It's not something that's going to surprise anyone. Um, It is going to be interesting to see how how it unfolds, though. Um, so this is, a, this is basically a question where both parties know this is going to be a problem. Um, and what the solution is going to be is going to be the, the, the more difficult thing to uh, sort out. Uh, but it'll be done on a bipartisan basis, almost certainly, because you literally can't do it uh, on any other basis, absent some kind of massive historical electoral change, which I don't see anybody for seeing, uh, anybody uh, foretelling in the next decade or so.
1: So if we were to look at Social Security a good few years out, um, the pot is going to run dry supposedly at some period of time where there isn't the funding to do it. Do you ever see it that it would be based on a needs-based? I, I know that would be awfully hard. Uh, it might spin off of an individual's tax return, but a tax return doesn't necessarily show an individual's all their income. Well, you know, Legally, you know, some things are just non-taxable. Uh, has there ever been any, um, um, mention of that, uh, in Congress, uh, how do we, how do we tackle this?
0: Well, I mean, this is, this is going to be something that, uh, legislators are going to have to address as they're approaching social security. Um, social security is funded by a few different mechanisms. About 77% of it or so is done by taxes. So current workers pay into the social security system and that goes out to current beneficiaries of social security. Uh, the last 23, 25% or so is paid out of the social security trust fund, right? And, and principal or interest made off of the principle of social security trust fund. Now what's gonna happen in the next few years is that the interest is gonna start, the, the amount that we owe people so in terms of social security will start eating into the principle of that trust fund. And so that trust fund is going to be depleted down to zero over time uh, because as you keep taking principal out, there's less interest to be paid out and more principal gets taken out, et cetera. And so it just becomes sort of like a snowball effect. Um, and at that point, uh, at some point within the early 2030s or the mid 2030s, um, we'll get to a situation where um, Social Security will not be 100% paid out, right? The, the, uh, the benefit owed to people at, at, in that, at that point in time. They only get about 77% of what they're owed based on the the, form, the benefit formula. And so what people are looking at is how to keep that solvent. Um, and a lot of solutions are out there. Um, means testing is one of them, right? If you're super rich, you might not need Social Security, right, uh, to, to stay afloat in retirement. Um, that's a possibility. Um, if you, uh, there's the chance that they raise the retirement age as they did in the 1980s to keep Social Security up. So. Uh, My generation uh, is eligible at 67, not 65. Um, So all of these things are out there. There's also something called chain CPI, which is the chain consumer price index, which basically like so one of the mechanisms within Social Security is tied to the inflation index or the price index. And what they could do is simply like not bump up the benefit as much as the inflation goes up. That's another possibility out there. The other is to raise taxes. Um, So it's gonna have to be a combination of all of these things, right? You can't simply do it by increasing spending or you can't simply do it by increasing taxes because the politics of these solutions make it near impossible. So it'll be a combination of some of these things. Um, What it actually ends up being, I don't know because I don't have a crystal ball, but um, that is certainly something that the two parties will bring to the table and bring to negotiations on any solution that's being proposed.
1: All righty, one more time. How does somebody uh, get to your website, uh, What you've said thus far is captivating. Um, and I don't know that uh, I could take notes as fast as the ideas came out. But I know you hold classes and, and the like. And we talked about this uh, before, but I think it deserves one more attention. So how does somebody uh, contact you?
0: All right. If you wanted to check out what we do here at the Government Affairs Institute, you can go to G A I at georgetown.edu sorry gai.georgetown.edu you can also email us if you want Uh, but on our website you can find lots of different things you can find links to the classes that we teach Um, you can find links to register you can also find blog pieces that we put out um, uh, that sort of cover current events or discuss things that are happening on capitol hill that are relevant to the federal uh, workforce and agencies Um, we also have a podcast that's out there we do it roughly bi-weekly or so or sorry uh, every other week bimonthly. Um, and we're, we just kind of discuss current issues through sort of like this academic slash practical lens that we have here at the Institute. So um, gai.georgetown.edu is how you find us. And um, just if you're interested in Congress or what's going on in Congress or how to understand it from a federal perspective, uh, we have lots of stuff available for you.
1: Andrew just told us we have less than four minutes left. Um, anything you uh, want in final comments? <laughs> two minutes. Well, Andrew says two minutes.
0: OK, it's been it's been reduced. I see. <laughs> um, well, I think one thing that's that's I think people should understand is that Congress is often framed in a way that makes it think it's a super uh, unproductive inst it's an unproductive institution. Right. It doesn't get anything done. It's always gridlocked. Uh, these are sort of the common refrains. Um, in reality, Congress is getting a lot done. Um, this is, and particularly the last couple Congresses, it's they've been fairly productive Congresses. It's not something that people really discuss a whole lot because Congress they like to beat up on Congress more than they like to praise it. Um, but this is not an institution that's doing nothing. Um, it's doing a lot of things. Uh, the end of the last Congress, in particular, they passed this major omnibus bill, which had like COVID relief and government funding and all this other stuff. It also included like some major diplomatic changes in our stance to China and Taiwan and Tibet. Uh, it had a massive amount of uh, of uh, programs there for climate change research. Um, this is this was a bill that was passed under a divided government, right? With Democrats controlling the House and Republicans controlling the Senate, and President Trump signing the bill. Um, they were there was a ton. They, they they ended surprise medical billing. They did they did a lot of things within the last four to six years. And so this kind of notion that Congress is broken and whatnot. It's like yes, it's ugly. The lawmaking process is is pretty ugly, but if we focus only on what's bad about the institution or what's negative about the institution, we overlook what it is doing. And what we're seeing is a fairly productive Congress in the last four to six years that's passing a lot of new legislation, solving a lot of issues and doing so on a predominantly bipartisan basis. So um, it is an institution that's sort of like it's likes to give loud uh, uh, bullhorns to some of the angriest voices within Congress, but it's also an institution that passes law and is doing so on a pretty bipartisan record for the most
1: part. All righty, Andrew says you got one minute left. So please, one more spot for how somebody can contact you, your organization.
0: Again, we're, we're we're a fun organization to learn from. Uh, we, you can find us at gai.georgetown.edu. And there you have links to our blog. Uh, you have links to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our podcast anywhere. It's called Congress, Two Beers In. Um, so if you are interested in listening to Congress or politics, you can listen to my colleagues and I have a couple beers and talk Congress and politics. Okay. Um, and sort of go it from an academic perspective.
1: That's where Andrew and I are going out for lunch. And anyway, <laughs> Josh, thank you ever so much.
0: Let's do it again. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure to be with you. righty, bye right. Bye-bye.
1: You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and
0: sponsored by WAPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.